Hi, I'm Jackie Miller, Certified Divorce Coach, Certified Divorce Transition and Recovery Coach, and High Conflict Divorce Coach, as well as host of this podcast, Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. Welcome to another episode from my Survivor Series. This episode, my guest, Amy, has joined us to talk about her journey through marriage and divorce with a narcissist and her life now as a survivor of narcissistic abuse. More episodes from this podcast can be found at outofcrazytown.com or jackiemillercoaching.com. Thank you for joining me. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Out of Crazy Town, your guide to divorcing a narcissist. This is your host, Jackie Miller, and I want to say a big thank you to Amy, who is joining us today. Welcome, Amy. Thank you, Jackie. I'm really happy to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. It's so awesome that you're on the show. Um, This is our Survivor Series, and again, I really appreciate you being here. These stories are so powerful, and there are so many people out there that, A, um, it's such a comfort to know that they're not alone, and B, just get to hear from folks that not only have been through it, but have come out the other side. So again, I just want to say thank you. So I just want to jump right in with some questions for you about your story, Amy. (laughs) Um, Just sort of walk us through a little bit, like in the beginning with your now ex-husband, correct? Yes. Yes. And, Um, and how you guys met? Well, I was still living and working in Europe. So I traveled, you know, full time every week all over the place and some mutual friends put us, you know, in touch and we went on a common hike together. So the chances of meeting were really small. And then we ended up seeing each other just on weekends because I was always gone. But um, initially that's how we met through common friends. Okay. Okay. And how did the relationship go from there? Well, very, very fast. Um, Literally, we met in the summer and by December, he had proposed to me and, you know, said he didn't believe in long engagements and wanted to be married by the following summer. So, you know, when we decided to go forward with this, I told my mom that we have five months to organize a wedding and I'm traveling 100 percent. So all the whirlwind, very quick, quick, quick thing. Another early red flag that I. Yeah could have paid more attention to, but he said it was cultural and, and I was fine with it. Um, okay. So very and, and quick. Yeah. Very. And really good point. And again, tell the listeners out there, I'm sure many of them can identify with this. Uh, that's almost always how the relationship goes super quick. And was there any, I'm curious, was there any, what we refer to those of us in the know as love bombing? Was there any of that going on? I've never had that much attention put on myself, Um, you know, and I, I chalked it up to the fact that I was gone through the week and that that was hard for him. And that, you know, we only had two days of quality time, but you know, he would, he would have all the food ready or he'd have something organized with friends and, you know, it was just perfect in the beginning. Absolutely. Um, but, But a lot of jealousy from the start. Again, I chalked that up to the fact that I was always gone in my head making excuses for these things early on. Okay. And what was that? What walk me through that? What was the jealousy part like? Well, because I was single and I'd come back and, you know, all my friends would be ready on the weekend to go out as a group. And many, most of them were, were single. So he was surrounded by a bunch of my single friends who couldn't wait to see me <laughs> Yeah, and was very, very uh, negative about it. Um, didn't rule them out right away because it was probably too early for him to, 
to put those kind of constraints on me, but mm -hmm. um, very jealous of like the deep, long friendships I have, the efforts they went into doing things for me. He just always thought there was an ulterior motive. Interesting. And that is so fascinating to me because again, I think that that is a component often seen in relationships with these folks. Um, and it is just sort of the beginning of the brainwashing, not brainwashing, but the controlling, I guess what I want to say factor, because yeah. tell me if I'm wrong, but you, because you immediately, once you identify like the jealousy, you do start to alter your own behavior. You do. And that, that, that ranged from what I wore, um, you know, that I, he was my same height. So he didn't want me to wear any heels. Cause then I would be an inch taller and you slowly just, you know, it was easier just to not wear a dress anymore because of the look on his face or the mm. heels, because you could see how he was breathing with uncomfort, you know, mm -hmm. comfort, uh, excuse me. So you, you tended to, you know, start losing a little bit of that free spirit that you were before, just because it was easier. Right. Oh, and that's so true. And, and it is the death by a thousand paper cuts because people who have never been in it don't really understand those really subtle, as you just said, the look on their face or it's the, the energy in the room changes and all of a sudden all the oxygen's gone and you're like, I'm in trouble for something. Or and the silence. Like, yeah. Oh. Which there's a lot of, and then you were like almost having to pay for it for days. And, you know, that was all slowly building as we went along, but I, you know, you, I did, I was not aware of all this early yeah. until I went through my divorce and started to research. And it was just like, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you just kind of adapted because you wanted to make it work. And, right. you know, he would always say, you know, you're always away and thinking you're so important because of your job. So you're constantly downplaying yourself. Um, I would find I did a lot of that as well. And right. Instead right. of, yeah, it was becoming unbalanced. <laughs> becoming unbalanced. Yeah, and you do. You start to, you start to lose a little bit of your own identity. Um, like you said, deny yourself things that you normally might like to do, like wear heels or a dress, or exactly. and then you're accommodating their lack of self confidence. And, exactly. You know, and but again, it's because there's this negative feedback, right? And you're slowly being conditioned. And so, and you said that red flags, um, it's like, we're so willing to overlook these things, right? Because yeah. how it started off was so amazing. Exactly. Exactly. And they always had a reason why they were treating you this way. You know, like you're always away or, you know, you have this important job. You need to come out of your work mode when you come here and you think, you know, he's right. He's right. It's probably I'm not seeing what I'm doing wrong. And you start making excuses for yourself. Right. So. And, you know, it's interesting when I've talked to um, other survivors that have been through this and are on the other side of it, I, I always like to point out, okay, let's pause right now and talk about what good looks like in a relationship, because this is something I know that I talk with young folks and even my daughters like, okay, should you have to change who you are, you know, in a relationship? Should you have to stop wearing heels? Should you, um, you know, have to worry about if what you're wearing doesn't make your significant other feel good? Should you worry about, you know, um, and things like that? Should you feel bad about having an awesome job where you travel? And so it is amazing the excuses that we make because of the way the relationship was set up in the beginning to be so awesome. Exactly. Exactly. You know? 
to overlook mm-hmm. over all of that. And it's abuse. It, it really is. It, it really is. And that, you know, that those are just the early days. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Right. Right. Those are just the early days. And, mm-hmm. and so, okay. And so then you get married. Yes. Yes. Very so we, quickly. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and I even look back onto my wedding. It was such a beautiful event, but he, he, if I think about it now, and I looked at the video, he, he never even turned around to look at me coming down the aisle. And that should have been a sign as well. Yeah. He was just in his world, you know? Yeah. Um, so we were married and we had two kids. Um, I worked throughout the, the whole of it. Um, the first child actually, in a way, uh, improved our relationship. And the second was the death of our relationship. Okay. Um, very, very quickly. Okay. Yeah. And that's, it is interesting that you say that as well, because uh, kids are very often a triggering factor for some of their behaviors. So tell me what happened with the second child. Um, you know, it was... To, I mean, it's second child is a lot, you know, it's a lot more work, obviously. And it was that following Christmas. So our son was four months old and he just said he just completely withdrew. Um, we were with all the family having what I thought was the happiest time of our life with both families there. And he just withdrew and he went into a depression and went to the room. And when I went in there just to say, can you help me with one of the kids? He he literally lost it for like nine hours. He was screaming and then he left for two weeks. He left me with the kids and my parents and said, you know, the mother immediately got involved and said he needed to regain his energies. And it was always the mother buffering anything and being overprotective of him while not caring that they're two little kids, you know, that needed their dad as well. And myself. So that was, it was almost like a fatigue that his, a psychological fatigue that he could not handle probably even less attention on him because there were, there was a newborn and a two year old. Um, And I know down the road, there were a lot of other sort of issues that he was struggling with, but um, that was really the end of our marriage. And I did seek some advice because it was that extreme how he had reacted. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we worked our way back through another year and my family moved back to the U S and then he, and he's never been fond of the U S and he suddenly wanted to move to the U S mm. that was just another strange thing. So he, we, we came over on holiday, insisted on buying a house right away and went back to Europe where we were and quit his job without telling me and said, we're moving. Mm. So he, it looked like, you know, I would be happy to be near my parents. And so we get back to the U S and he, I said, you know, you, you need to seek immigration advice. Cause you can't just keep flying back and forth. And he just kept flying back and forth till they stopped him and essentially deported him back to Europe for 18 months. Wow. Um, and at that point we'd rented out our family home in Europe. And that was our, that was our income because he wanted to start a new business over here. And so the first two months, everything was so fine. We're, I was helping getting him immigration advice and all the paperwork to apply for his green card. And, just the, the more detached he became from us, the more he blocked us financially. And, you know, if there was a need for the child, like our, the birthday party, um, he would say, well, I'm not going to benefit from being there. I'm not sending the money. And it was, wow. yeah, it was such a, gosh, it was so hard to see because all, all we wanted to do was find a way to get together. And after six months, he said, you know, you need to bring the kids back to Europe. And I said, I have no problem doing that. Just send us a, a round trip ticket and he would never send, he would only want to send a one-way ticket. Mm. So a lot of red flags were 
you know, coming up there too. And eventually sure. I filed for divorce and that became very complicated for immigration reasons and tried to negotiate and had to in the end cancel the divorce. We could come back. <laughs> wow. And that's when he came back with no intention to reconcile. And we went through a three year ghastly custody battle. And so, and back to your story about the kids and the money and not sending, um, again, just with the financial abuse, one of the many components or many forms of abuse, I should see, say that are exacted on victims of the people with narcissistic personality disorder, assuming or cluster B, you know, something in that realm, um, yeah. that it sounds like he had it. Were there other signs of financial abuse or is that, was that one of his big ticks? What was well, the sort of personality that the divorce took, uh, took on? Well, I grew up with very traditional parents who are still together after 55 years. And when we married, I immediately went and set up a joint bank account and he refused to do anything joint. He refused to merge any of our income or any of that. And so it was always this black hole that he had. I never knew what he had. If he needed anything extra, he used his mom's credit card. And it was just always, there was no, there was nothing together financially. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we did move away and I said, you know, we need to set up a pension account because he was an entrepreneur and he did private banking. And okay, he said, you know, we'll always have our properties to retire with one day. We don't need pensions and things like that. And so when we did move abroad and our income essentially was renting our house out, he would, I, I said, well, I need to at least have access to our rent. You know, that's our joint rent. And it just sure. never happened and just got worse and worse and worse, you know, to the fact that we were in our home uh, in the U.S. And, you know, our, our door lock was broken and, you know, we couldn't fix the, the door for like eight months, just begging him to send money over. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. those sort of definitely red flags. Um, I should have seen it that he never wanted anything joint. He never had any financial papers at home. They were always locked away in the office, all the kind of things that are obvious now, but sure. And I, again, want to thank you so much for coming on to tell your story, because I think I have heard such a, you know, similar story from numerous other people. And you look back and you feel so silly later on. And I don't, I want anyone listening out there. Don't feel bad. Don't feel ashamed. Don't feel it was all intentional. You're yeah. married. You want to trust your spouse, you know, you, but yeah, you look back and the fact that the finances are com kept completely separate, mm -hmm. you know, the um, victim being kept in the dark, obviously all intentional. And it, it just happens time and time and time again in these types of relationships. And it's just, it's mind boggling that it was set up that way from day one. Right. Yeah, and the energy that was put into, you know, keeping you in the dark and, and it just, it blows my mind. But again, that's why we're doing this. And I keep saying this, but I want to thank you so much for coming on because I want anyone out there listening to know that they're not the only one and don't feel foolish. Don't feel silly. Don't exactly. be embarrassed to ask for help or admit that you don't know any of the finances because the keeping them all locked away, a tactic they all often use and yeah, just keeping, keeping you in the dark financial abuse. I feel like the term just really isn't widely enough known. It is the number one controlling way to keep a victim in their spot, because if they can't support themselves or their children, yeah. um, and it's gone on for years. And so you are put in a position where you really are in a bind. It's very effective. I know. And, and, you know, I would rational, 
rationalize it because he would he would cover you know the big costs like the regular utilities costs and i would pay you know from either savings or rent from my property my other property you know anything to do with the kids and anything if i ever needed a haircut or there would never be any joint funds for anything to do with me and the kids so yeah and yeah. you, you know, he would say well you have to do your part and of course i am but i mean i have a i'm one month old you know and it's <laughs> i can't right. just start traveling again and you know you just i don't know but you do you rationalize it you do while you're going through it of course of course like i said and it's it's it was all designed and intentional and to the point, like you made a point too, that I've also heard um, from survivors that you get conditioned to that point where you don't even want to ask for money for something like your own children, exactly. you know? And, and I even hate using the term ask for money. It's your money too, you know? Right. And it's, that's, oh. it's the crazy thing, but you know, it, it was, it was always his, his and his family's money. Cause yeah essentially someone else was controlling him yeah. uh, to behave a certain way. And, and ultimately his mom was the one who funded the whole divorce and yeah. And which again, there's a pattern there. Lots of times it is a mom factor and I, I don't know, you know, exactly what it is. It's a story I hear time and time again, but regardless of what happened in their childhood and how they became this way, um, there often is mom in the background yeah. Um, yeah, who idolized him, idolized, yeah, idolized them. Yeah. And in fact, so did you feel that there was sort of a narcissistic family happening with your in-laws? No, his mother was a hundred percent narcissistic okay. and, and she, her husband was not, but he, she was, and he was the same way and he never treated her well. And I thought, gosh, she gives him so much. I mean, I don't know where it goes, but <laughs> yeah, she gives him so much. Why isn't he nicer to her? You know, even the way he spoke to her was so strange to me, just that would yeah. have never happened in my family. Sure. Um, but, you know, she it, had I even going through the divorce where they tried to coerce me to drop the divorce, which I did. And I still wanted to believe that he was going to change even sure. then. And it just it just became. Yeah, I read emails and, and communications that she was the one funding this whole thing. Yeah. And, yeah. But you know, whether she was not kind or, or was kind is not the point. It's him who had to, you know, take some control over his relationship and put her a little bit in place. Right. Um, Right. And what was your treatment? What was the treatment to you or of you by his family during your marriage? I'm just, Oh, in the beginning, I mean, it was, I was showered with kindness and generosity and gifts. And that ended literally at our wedding. It Mm. ended at our wedding. And she even, in fact, probably bought my engagement ring and brought it for him. I mean, I should have ah, noticed all this back then, but you know, as of the wedding, there was never, there was never another kind word said. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and especially after I had the second child that it was like, they've had what they needed. <laughs> yeah. You think it would be the opposite. And I just, I have to tell you this because I have a client that um, told me this recently as well said, should have seen the red flag the diamond was given to her husband by her mother-in-law. So mm-hmm. he didn't even go sh- like really go shopping for the ring or anything. The mother-in-law like sort of made it happen. Yes, then, that was exactly my situation. Okay. So then after the ring was bought, the mother-in-law asked my client, well, wh- where's your wedding band? Didn't he get a wedding band? And the client said, well, no, it's okay. It's okay. I'm fine. Yeah. I guess he didn't buy one, but she said, it's not okay. So the mother-in-law went and bought the wedding band. 
like, well, he did that. He did buy the okay. wedding, okay. but I had to tell him to do it. <laughs> okay. And it was just, it was so interesting. Like, like you said, like not even turning around to look, look at you come down the aisle or like in the case of my client, like no effort really put into even the wedding ring and the mother-in-law's in the background doing all of it, trying to make it happen. Her case, she was sort of saying that she felt like the mother-in-law was trying to offload him. <laughs> but oh, um, yeah, you know, it has some similarity. <laughs> yeah. And it's, but, it's not funny, but it, you know, I guess at some point we have to try to giggle or try to find humor in it to move for on. For sure. Huh? Oh, you have to, it's the only way you have to keep, keep yourself sane. Yeah, keep <laughs> It's yourself just sane. You know, little things, even in Valentine's day, you know, there would never be even a flower again. There was in the beginning. And even if, if you maybe were disappointed, it would be like, why is it all about you? Why do you need these material symbolic things? You know, I, I'm walking down the street on a walk with you. And I, I said, I love that we're walking, but you know, like he would just make you feel so bad. And I'm not talking about any huge expectation, just I don't right. know, like a flower from the supermarket, <laughs> just anything to show that like maybe once in a while you go out of your way and you feel so alone. Yeah. You just feel so alone <sighs> because to the outside world, they are charming and, um, friendly um even though in the background they want you to and your fam myself and my family to cut any ties with old old family friends that he felt uncomfortable around and you know he needed to know that they would put him first mm-hmm. um and it was it's just ah it was so clear back then but <laughs> yeah yeah and so and to that point because i know you said it didn't happen like super early on but was there isolation then that started to happen from your friends very, and- very much within the first year or two Okay. Yeah, it just became very difficult to to find a way to keep. I I, I still have my dearest friends. They they understood. Yeah, but um, you know, even during the divorce, it was so isolating because no one could understand that it could get to this extreme level of conflict when it looks completely peaceful on the outside. And and even with him in the divorce, you know, he refused to speak to me. He hid behind his lawyers, um, and it was just this silent divorce of you know, petitions and it's just always been silent. He's just doesn't, he doesn't talk um, unless it's, you know, a little insult here and there. So it was never like this loud um, communicative relationship. Right. <laughs> it was very silent, right. very isolating. And so then you said it ended up taking three years. So how did, how did it finally come to a close? Like what? So it was almost four. If you consider the first year that I, 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 I filed when he was abroad just because he was saying that I was not bringing the kids back and he was not consenting to this behavior. And my lawyer said, you, you can't, you can't have those kind of accusations. You need to protect yourself. But of course, because we were filing for his green card, it looked like I was filing to cut him away. It appeared that way because he wow. was abroad. So we couldn't come to any agreement. I dropped the divorce. I let him, I get it, sponsored him. He came back at his green card, had no intention to, to reconcile so I refiled again a year later, and that took three year, three more years. Yeah. Eventually, defending myself through nineteen of his accu- allegations, accusations, a full psychological evaluation of the kids, myself and him, because I'm, I, you know, I believe that he had some mental concerns. Sure. And of course, you will be pulled into that. Um, and only because I had, because of a nanny, we had, I had a nanny cam in my house because we suspected her from stealing, did I have the biggest shocker of my life, which was, you know, abuse to the children caught on nanny cam. And then they tried to, to say they were going to send me to jail because there was no consent, even though he, the thing had been there for a year. 
and he had passwords to it and everything and was aware of it. So that was very scary. But in the end, that's the only way that the psychologist believed me in the end. Wow. And everything I had been saying all along. Wow. What advice do you have for people, if any? Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, whatever you do, just, just, if it feels wrong, it's, it's usually wrong. Um, and try not to isolate yourself. And I mean, thank goodness I had so I I'm a documenter. I journal everything and I had so much documentation. Probably that was because he was abroad and everything was in writing, but that helped me. So just being very calm and methodical and just know that you're doing this for the best of your kids. You just keep going after four years, (laughs) you just want to roll over and collapse and you just, you can't when you have two little kids. So just to know that, you know, this will end one day, but I mean, without the support network I had and the deep, deep uh, supportive friends and my parents, I would have never survived this. Yeah. So you said a number of things there. So, and I've just written a blog on this as well. And one of the things I said was definitely a support system because I've, I'm going to generalize and I know, you know, throughout the disclaimer, this not always women, but many of the clients who are usually women, you know, we'll say they found themselves, you know, with the friends gone now and even some close relatives and they are completely isolated. Ah, oh, gosh, I don't know. It go either back to those people that used to have relationships with. They will understand, let them know, you know, lots of times they just weren't aware, like you said, because they're so charming and they seem so nice to the outside world. And you just can't imagine how many people are just willing and waiting with open arms. And you're probably going to hear them say, you know, we thought so. Right. And and that's really hard to hear after. <laughs> but I mean, it's like you say, not no one expects this, this level of kind of deceit and, and acting and manipulation. Mm-hmm. It's just not your normal thing. And so it's, you know, there is sometimes there's skepticism of yeah. what going through but um the ones that are really going to be there for you are always going to be there for you and the ones yeah. that don't you just have to let it go yeah no you're right you yes and that that sometimes is a painful um lesson to learn about the ones that you do have to let go but i mean when it comes to even you know get online look for support groups you know please call the therapist um divorce coaches <laughs> don't <laughs> isolate yourself don't do isolate not, do not isolate yourself you're absolutely right it's um it's not a good path to do no, that and, and so and exercise is like my one therapy no matter what I did my hour walk every day and that's when I had my thinking time and because the divorce was a whole like strategic survival effort I mean literally for three years we were we had boxes at my parents house getting out documentation I mean you can imagine the documentation for four or five years yeah from when it first went bad and it's just becomes this exhausting survival episode. So you have to look after yourself. No yeah. matter what. if you're not sleeping, if you can squeeze in a nap, you do it, you do whatever you can just to keep going because it will end. And sometimes it doesn't end. <laughs> but like, <laughs> you know, you do divorce, but you're still co parenting with Yeah, yeah. That and that's, that's another episode, but you're absolutely right. No, I know. And so and again, but back to the support, yes. which is why that's because you do become stronger. Yeah. Um, your skin gets thicker. It does. You realize, you know, where, where your strengths really lie. And then, yeah, you just develop a community of people that you can depend on. For sure. For sure. And, and educate yourself as much as you can, because reading the books on, on, you know, narcissism and personality disorders were just eye opening and 
you have an ultra awareness after going through this, but yeah. you know, you can see that you had every sign there in the world. Right. Before. What was, was there like a book you read or a article you read that an article you read that where the light bulb went off? I mean, I, I can't remember all the books cause I read so many, but I, uh, one mom's battle helped yes. me immensely. I, I can't tell you. I even reading the other people's stories who were, sending questions out just helped me so much to know that I'm not the only one going through this insanity. I, I'd have to look back through all my books. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've um, heard. And that's Tina Switham for those that um, aren't familiar with that one. When mom's battle, yeah. I have heard it has really been the aha moment, you know, hundred percent. I mean, reading her newsletters and her stories, it was just, it was just too close to home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I reckon she's a great resource. I recommend anyone listening to go to onemomsbattle.com or Google Tina Swithin. Um, yeah, she's she's wow. just she's a remarkable woman and I just yeah, she's done she's a lot. A warrior. Yes, yes. Really no, but informing yourself, you know, it helps so much because you 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 know something's wrong. You know that these things are not normal and they consume your head so much. It's so yeah. exhausting. And when you know that if you can get out there and, and prepare yourself and be aware of them, that helps immensely too. Absolutely. And the other thing to remember is you were chosen and victims of narcissistic abuse were chosen because you're smart, you're yeah. empathetic, you are witty, you're charm, you're you're nice, you're funny, you're Open. you are open you are an amazing person and they literally chose you because you're amazing and is if you can remind yourself of that if there is some <laughs> weird twisted lining to why you're here it's to remind yourself that you are an amazing person and so unfortunately you were targeted for that but you are amazing and so i want everyone out there to know if you are suffering this kind of abuse to dig deep and remind yourself of how awesome you are, because unfortunately that's, you know, part of the reason. I know, I know. And, you know, just being an open communicative person will, with these types of personalities will be used against you. I mean, yeah. any weakness you have that you would talk about with your partner, it all came out later in the divorce, you know, from, I don't know, thyroid medicine, just anything, just anything, things like that. It was, it was unbelievable. The things yeah. I wrote that they were using against me. Yeah. I got to the point where I heard so many stories of women saying, I stopped even apologizing to my spouse because later it would be used against me that I yes. apologize. Like, see, instead exactly. of thank you for apologizing and let's talk this through, it was see, you were wrong. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh God, and even, even when we first had problems, I, I tried to go to counseling and the therapist that we went to had, they were not aware of his personality disorder. So if he said something like, you know, she has this old family friend who everybody loves, the therapist would say, well, you need to listen to him more. He feels like a guest in the, you know, it was just crazy. Therapy uh, only hurt our relationship and gave yeah. him more ammunition. Yes. So <laughs> and again, so, so a piece of advice then that's such a great point because, you know, maybe folks are out there that are still in the marriage and wondering what's going on. And if you go to a therapist, you, you know, all of these things are starting to sound very familiar to you. So you're right. If you're hearing that kind of advice from the therapist and you're thinking, this does not seem right. right. Um, it's okay. Break up with them or after, if you're seeking therapy and you've been through this, make sure you ask them, like, how well are you familiar with these kind of disorders? Like, don't be shy. Find the right, right therapist that completely understands because there is, exactly. it's like being abused again, right? It is. It is. And, and, and that's the same with when you hire an attorney, interview them. 
if they're aware of these kinds of character types and personality disorders. And, you know, if you if you are that far along and you've noticed that there's you can put a name to it, you yeah. know, you want to make sure your attorney's aware of that as well. Oh, absolutely. They really, really have to understand because they have to be able to be strategic with you, as you know, to anticipate. Um, I, I just called it a chess game. It, chess exactly. moves. it was exactly that. I've never heard that. <laughs> That's yeah. perfect. Uh, I, they, they just want to wear you down. It sounds almost calloused, but if you can take any of the emotion out, when yes. you are making decisions with them, because they don't have any emotion when they're making decisions about what they're going to do to exactly. you or against you. And it is the only way really to fight fire with fire is to A, look at your divorce as a business transaction and 100%. B, yeah, just try to make your next chess move as unemotional, you know, as possible. Yeah, because um, you think you're going to have some sort of emotional justice and you're, you're just not with a person like that. <laughs> right. No, you're just not. And really quick, I want to go back because you, yeah. I want to talk about documenting. If you just could quickly say, you said you journaled, what, what are your recommendations on documenting? Because it is such a big deal. It is. I mean, knowing we were going to talk today, I had to go back and look at a lot of it. So it was amazing how much I was, before the divorce, I would write a lot about how I felt because I felt so unhappy inside. And I just, it was almost like a, I felt depressed. I wasn't depressed, but I felt so sad and alone to be lying next to someone who just shows no empathy and can, you're nine months pregnant and they show no empathy. They went to sleep when I went into labor. My mom stayed up with me. I mean, it's just kind of, it's so hard that journaling helps you just get it out of your system and put it to paper. And then of course, once things went really downhill, it was really important for me to keep that habit in place, but it, it definitely helped me in defending myself Okay, um, and having things to look back to because your brain is so overloaded that you, you forget even coming back today. I was just like, I think we somehow try to put it away. Yes. <laughs> Want to forget and journaling helps you keep it because if you do have kids you may you never know when they may re rear their head again and you need to go back to court so whatever yeah. you do pre pre and post um not only is it good for your psyche just to get it out on paper and try to get it out of yourself and process it but you do have a point of reference to keep track of the insanity <laughs> sure no, that's, it's such great advice. And I know you said you journaled. I know some people are afraid to have those things lying around. And I have, um, did a podcast with a woman from the national network to end domestic violence. And there are apps out there as well. Um, that one is DocuSafe, but you can get an app and, and type things, you know, into your phone. And then it's, you know, an app they can't get into. In fact, I believe this one even goes dark if you just set your phone down. Um, that's a great tip. That's a yeah. great tip. I yeah. mean, it's something I've passed on to my daughter. She journals and, you know, we found out a lot of things that way just because she didn't want to talk about what was happening in the house when he was there. And, but I think it helped her as well, just to write, yeah. write, 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 write. Well, write. great advice. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I know, is there, you know, I already asked you for advice on, you know, what you would tell people, but is there one thing you want people out there to know that may be going through a divorce with a narcissist now, and they're just in the throes of it? What do they have to look forward to when they get to the other side? I can just tell you, just keep going because it does end. And even if it's still hard now, it's nowhere near as hard as before and you have your freedom and you will have access hopefully to a new independent future because that was really the hardest thing the financial independence on top of the whole abuse to have not to depend on that person anymore um you know is it's just 
it's such a relief and you have space in your head again for other things. And it's amazing how much your, your children uh, absorb when you're going through that, that, you know, now they can see you smile and you, you know, you're just a freer, happier person and just don't give up is all you can do. And it's so hard. I know it's easy to say, don't give up, but just keep going because it will end. And there is light after a long divorce like this. I yeah. can tell you after four years. <laughs> awesome. Amy, yeah. thank you so much. It's just been yeah. um, so great to have you come on and just tell your story and give people out there hope. And like you said, just don't give up because there are a number of us out here and we just want to help exactly. and be there for you. Knowing and- you're not the only one is, is huge. It's so, huge. It's huge. Don't, don't right. be alone. <laughs> All right. Thank you again, Amy. Take care. All Thank right. You. I really appreciate Thank you so coming much. on the show. I appreciate it too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.